Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today, because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Run. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart, Brian. This is Chief for Yourself. Now, here's Geo. Hi, and welcome to Chief for Yourself. I'm happy you're with us today, wherever you happen to be in the world at this moment. Our guest on this program is Rick Heller. Rick leads meditations at the Humanist Community at Harvard. He is a freelance journalist who's written for the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and a number of other publications. Rick is also the author of Secular Meditation, 32 Practices for Cultivating Inner Peace, Compassion, and Joy. The book brings us exercises and examples of meditation suitable for people of any religion or of no religion. And it homes in on something called loving-kindness meditation. We'll get to that in a moment. First, though, Rick, I want to ask you, how did you come to make meditation a part of your own life? This goes back uh, quite a number of years. I I first got into meditation. Um, I lived in San Francisco at the... uh, I was... uh, going to the YWCA to swim, and um, there was a meditation class offered there that was completely secular. It was treated as just as an exercise. Um, as I discussed in the book, uh, prior to that, I'd actually been pretty skeptical of meditation, and uh, something uh, occurred in my life, which I described. Uh, I won't go in there in just a second, but uh, that opened me up a little bit. So when I saw this meditation class, it was a breath meditation, I followed and I said, I'll try it, and it was, I found it to be helpful in, in kind of settling nerves and things like that. And I, I pursued that for just breath meditation for about 20 years. I really didn't know that there were other types of meditation. And it was really probably about seven or eight years ago that I op- opened up to just many more different sort of practices, such as uh, the body scan, ambient sound meditation, walking meditation, things opened up for me when I kind of learned them. Uh, and uh, since then, I've hooked up with the humanist community at Harvard, and I've actually been leading meditation. Mm-hmm. Now, secular meaning non-religious, but uh, the meditations in the book are derived from religious sources, mostly Buddhist. Talk about what you, uh, I guess, took out of those meditations to make them secular. Well, the, the meditations themselves, I would say, for the most part, are already secular. There's the, uh, oftentimes it's sort of the, uh, the words around them have, uh, when people kind of explain the context of them that can be uh, not so secular. Although actually in the loving kindness meditation I do, when I describe it, there are some, it's a guided meditation, there are some words used and I tweak the wording so that it doesn't sound like a prayer. So I, I the people um, who lead meditations are, many people have like scientific backgrounds and are very particular about this one so make sure things Nothing would rub folks the wrong way, but the, the meditations themselves, uh, a breath meditation is uh, itself is, I would say, uh, secular. But the so the explanation sometimes of how the meditations work, uh, I make clear, for instance, the loving kindness of meditation from our perspective that there are no nothing's kind of magically traveling. There are no like psychic powers, as far as we know, that travel uh, through space to affect people when you. But of loving kindness to another person, it changes your brain, it 
change yourself, and then the next time you meet that person, you might be more kindly toward them. Mm-hmm. Now, you lead the humanist community at Harvard, and I don't think Harvard is the first place that pops into our minds when we think about meditation, mindfulness, sowing love and compassion. What is the humanist community's involvement with Harvard? Uh, well, the humanist community is one of the uh, groups that serves Harvard students, uh, just as you have a Roman Catholic community, Jewish community, Muslim community. Increasingly, Harvard students, actually this fresh, this year, the freshmen, a plurality of them uh, registered as uh, non-religious in a, in a poll done by the Crimson, which is the campus newspaper. So there is a, increasingly younger people are, are not religious, but our, our perspective is that uh, there are some things that uh, religion came up with, like meditation, that are, are pretty useful. So let's try to find a way to, um, you know, take out the things that are, are unnecessary and, and get to the core, which, you know, which really works. Yeah, and, and speaking of uh, religious practices and people who feel that maybe those practices have let them down, they're looking to the East in disciplines like meditation. Is there a place for what I'll call Eastern philosophies in secular meditation? Yeah, so we, um, I do uh, have, um, I don't know, interest. I approach Buddhist philosophy on a, you might call it cherry-picking, but I try to uh, approach it on evidence-based, and we certainly set aside anything like rebirth or reincarnation. Uh, we find no evidence. There's no scientific evidence for that. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there are some other aspects of Buddhist philosophy, such as uh, what's called the Four Noble Truths. Uh, and I actually do believe that uh, that particular aspect of Buddhist philosophy is consistent with uh, what scientists find about the brain, and specifically the idea that when uh, suffering occurs, when you are rejecting uh, the world uh, at, that is uh, that is coming at you, that when you have an experience and you actually try to resist or reject that experience, that actually increases the amount of suffering, and that when you accept uh, what is going on, that actually reduces the amount of suffering. I think uh, uh, there's evidence, and I've actually done some journalism related to to this, and I've, I've interviewed some neuroscientists about how um, certain, aspects, certain areas of the brain process uh, signals of, of suffering, that that is actually true. So we sort of pick and choose in Eastern philosophy based upon what we do think is scientifically valid. Mm-hmm. And someone who uh, comes upon secular meditation, and I feel that it's useful for anybody of any stripe, religious or non, someone who insists on the existence of a supreme being, is there any kind of a clash here? And if there is, how, how do you explain that? Well, I, I, I actually don't think uh, that there is a clash, so I, I do uh, hope that everyone uh, is uh, interested in taking a look at the book. We, you know, I've written it specifically for people who are non-religious, but I, I think actually it would be uh, pretty useful for people who are religious as well. I, I treat it as a form of exercise, and, you know, religious people go jogging, religious people can meditate. Mm-hmm. Well, the book explains how the secular phrases begin with, I'd like you to be, and as you mentioned earlier, they're, they're not expected to travel through space to achieve the desired effect. I'm wondering how prayer would be viewed through secular meditation, since prayer gets credit oftentimes for things like healing and other reversals of fortune. Well, I am, and I would say humanists are um, skeptical that prayer would, you know, travel through space. Uh, 
and I guess what's called intercessory prayer, where it's, it's thought that you would pray and somebody at a distance would be affected. But certainly, uh, I, I took attitude, and if it can get you, give you confidence, I, I uh, think that, you know, prayer might help you, uh, you know, ace the test, let's say, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, do well in a football game. But uh, our preference is to modify the language so that uh, it doesn't have the um, appearance of, of petitioning a higher power. Mm-hmm. Early on, you say that universal love is possible. What does universal love mean in this case? Well, the, uh, the loving-kindness practice is a way of shifting your attitude toward people so that uh, you... You, you, the, the practice of meditation, you start by thinking about loved ones and uh, meditating on the warm feeling that occurs when uh, you think about loved ones. And you increasingly widen the circle to what we call neutral people, let's say the person uh, who served you coffee at uh, Starbucks, and uh, you cultivate uh, warm feelings toward that person, and then eventually even toward people... Uh, broaden our circle of care to include everyone. I do caution, though, that um, for people, there are, you know, serial killers, psychopaths, and uh, mm-hmm. I discuss this, uh, that you don't want to love them to the point where you'd like to invite them over your house and, and have dinner with them. There may be some harmful people. And for the harmful people, I think the goal is not so much to uh, sort of cherish them as to I get over the sense of hatred and ill will, and uh, if you can make a shift toward uh, understanding that they are um, damaged human beings who, you know, something has occurred in their life which caused them to act in a um, a bad way, and uh, think rationally about what is the best way so that they will cause less harm in the future. Mm-hmm. Our guest on this Chief for Yourself is Rick Heller, author of Secular Meditation, 32 Practices for Cultivating Inner Peace, Compassion, and Joy. Now people, uh, when they hear the word meditation and they hear about meditation, are thinking they have to totally empty their minds. That's not quite the case, is it? Well, there are different types of meditation. I do have uh, 32 different types of meditation and mindfulness practices in the books. So meditation are... I, I, the way I sort of use the word, where you sort of sit down for 20 minutes and close your eyes and do something in a formal basis. And mindfulness is you might be taking a walk and you're, be, you have, you're being aware of what is going on around you. Some of the meditations are um, guided meditation, love, like the loving-kindness practice, where you wouldn't be quieting the mind. But I actually do like to quiet the mind, and I myself do practices uh, to quiet the mind, including uh, breath meditation, and I do find the mind quiet after that. And I also... I have a chapter I call face meditation. I find that by relaxing the muscles used in speech, that is the muscles of the throat, tongue, and uh, jaw, and and, uh, you actually, that is actually a very quick way to quiet the mind. There's actually some scientific research that shows why that might be the case. So I actually do like to turn down the volume of inner chatter in my own mind. It helps me look out at the world and and really enjoy the space I'm in. Mm -hmm. The work of John Kabat-Zinn, which I believe was at UMass, uh, found opportunities that allow us to decrease our stress response 
and leading to improved physical and mental health. Uh, that would seem to be a, a direct mind-body connection, wouldn't it? Well, the, uh, the so the, the um, sexual augmentation goes back, <coughs> excuse me, back about 40 years to um, the relaxation response of Dr. Herbert Benson, and then about uh, 30 years ago to John Kabat-Zinn. They've found that there, there they've, there's been some research at you uh, at excuse me at uh, Harvard uh, Medical School, Mass General Hospital associated with Harvard Medical School, that shows people who take the mindfulness-based stress reduction course. Uh, there are actually changes to the brain uh, after the eight-week course that are consistent with what one would expect uh, if, if some uh, you are learning skills that help you reduce stress. So the practice has been shown both through self-reports, people do say they experience less stress, less stress. and there's also some evidence that there are changes in the brain that actually uh, are consistent with uh, the idea that they experience less stress. Mm -hmm. The uh, expression some, uh, we sometimes hear is that happiness is an inside job, and you write that happiness comes about internally and depends very little on externals. Uh, those are encouraging words for anyone struggling with hardships in their lives. As you see it, how does that inner work bring about happiness in life in general? Well, as I uh, uh, as an example, if uh, the um, if you were listening uh, to the radio and you heard that your favorite team won the game, that would make you happy. But there's nothing in the sound of radio broadcast that contains happiness. So what is happening is that a piece of information came to you, and then your body is reacting with. Um, transmission of uh, whatever hormones and chemicals produce the experience of happiness. So there are actually ways, and the loving kindness meditation is one, where you can actually uh, sort of self-generate happiness. You ba basically, what, what my claim is that as long as you have your basic needs met, you have enough food, uh, water, uh, shelter, health care, and once your physical needs are met, you, with sufficient training, you have the, what you need to uh, leverage uh, that to become happy. So I do think uh, that things that go on in the outside world make it easier, but you actually have the ability uh, inside yourself to generate happiness. In the book, you, you reworked the serenity prayer, and you write that uh, originally the serenity prayer uh, was not actually in prayer form. Can you give us some background on how that came to be? Yeah, it's it believed the um, Serenity Prayer in its uh, well-known form was uh, written by Reinhold Niebuhr, American uh, uh, pastor, about um, about 80 years ago, I guess. And uh, uh, but he uh, or his daughter, I've read a book that his daughter Elizabeth Sifton wrote about that, and uh, it really goes back to the ancient Stoics, Greek uh, in Greece and Rome, and that's people like Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius. And uh, that uh, they, the way they um, the way they expressed it was not in prayer form, and it was sort of reformulated by Ronald Niebuhr in a prayer form, which is fine for the people who find that valuable. But for people who don't like that form, it's also easy to just tweak the wording a little bit to uh, express it. I, I do like the logic of it very much because acceptance can help us reduce our suffering. But there are times where we really do need to confront. Um, problems and have the courage to change things in the world. 
in your uh, in your blog, in your website, you mentioned that you have your own mindfulness challenges. What kind of challenges do you have, and how do you tend to respond? Oh, well, I don't know if you read my, my looked at my website, uh, but uh, uh, leaf blowers. Right now, this is the <laughs> see. I like to rake. Mindful raking is I find quite pleasant. But uh, uh, right in my neighborhood, there's a lot of leaf blowers with a uh, very sound that is very. Um, I find it unpleasant, and I must say I've I failed. I wrote a blog post basically about failing to be mindful of leaf blowers. So mindfulness is paying attention to what's going on in the present moment with a friendly, welcoming attitude. So I, would, I could pay attention, but uh, the, that uh, that particular sound I have yet to be able to bring friendly, welcoming attention to. And, and uh, on that note, uh, I think it was Chapter 16 where you talk about mindful, manual labor. Do you bring that same attitude toward the mundane things that we do from day to day, which might be operating a leaf blower? Well, I um, I do, when I do actual raking, I do bring mindfulness to it. I enjoy that. When I wash the dishes, I bring mindfulness to that, and I find it helps in washing the dishes. So you would be mindful of the, the temperature of water, reflections uh, on the uh, the dishes from if, if you're during the daytime, let's say, and the sun comes in. And uh, there's all these sensations that you actually can um, pay attention to and that are a quite uh, pleasant uh, uh, to do that. So uh, all sorts of uh, manual labor are opportunities uh, to be mindful. Hmm. Seen from a, a humanist perspective, uh, I'm wondering how loving kindness can convince the brain to care about someone who's uh, in, to borrow, uh, I guess, a more Buddhist word, or resistance, who may not really uh, care about someone or haven't cared about them, and now they're trying to do a sell job on themselves to care about them. How, how do you turn that in your favor? Well, in a loving-kindness practice, uh, you first start thinking about loved ones and yourself, and then we call a neutral person, and then, let's say, a difficult person. The way it actually works physiologically is that uh, when you uh, think about a, a loved one, when you're in a bonding sort of situation, if, you, if you're actually in the situation person with a loved one, it's believed that uh, neurohormones like oxytocin, vasopressin are released, and these chemicals actually have stick around for a few minutes. They, they, uh, and and I've actually interviewed a, a neuroscientist, a scientist about this, and they they stick around for a few minutes, and they actually bias you uh, for those few minutes to be friendly to whomever you, you next encounter. So if you were uh, with your relatives and, and you were having a really nice time and then someone rang the doorbell uh, and who you didn't know, uh, well, it's possible you might be irritated, but another possibility is you might be in such a great mood you'd be very friendly toward them. So uh, th this kind of practice uh, sort of leverages what goes on in the brain, the sort of quirk of the brain that the, you, you have this sort of stew of positive chemicals when you when you cultivate this practice that it, it leverages your feelings so that uh, these other people who you weren't necessarily as friendly with, you can actually look at them again with a little bit more friendliness. We, we've talked a lot about the mind today and in its place in our practice, um, but what about the place of emotions? Where does that uh, fall in, in all of this? Well, so, I, you know, we, uh, in our meditation group, we do focus a little bit more on emotions. Humanism often focuses very much on reason, sort of cold intellect. 
and that is actually part of our community. We often have talks and lectures, but on our Tuesday nights when we have our meditations, we, we focus really on the emotions. We have our meditations, and then afterwards we, we go around, people talk about uh, what's going on in their lives. Um, you know, we keep it confidential uh, with the, 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 the specific things they say, but uh, we have people share their emotions because that is part of uh, human beings, and you can't just be... Uh, you can't just limit things to reason. Uh, we, and we do try to, um, the, 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 I would say the ideal is if you can get to a point of equanimity. That's sort of a Buddhist ideal, and, and I embrace that. And, and um, point of equanimity where even if some unpleasant things occur, you, you have resilience so that you, you get back to your, your point of balance. And equanimity doesn't have to be neutral. It can actually be kind of a positive equanimity overall. Um, because, uh, you know, like it's wonderful just to be alive, and from our human perspective, it's a little bit. Uh, we're lucky to have been born, uh, you know, a human being. So there's, uh, it's a kind of a pretty lucky thing to have happened. Mm -hmm. One last question, and uh, I'll, I'll wrap it up. The the loving kindness practices in the book aim for personal fulfillment and for creating a better world. Using secular meditation as our template, can you give us an intention? Uh, possibly a mantra that would help us deal and then see our way through the fear and confusion of the kind that the whole world is feeling right now. Well, that's, uh, that's challenging. I, when we uh, do, we do a mantra meditation, sometimes I use the word just love, so just on the in-breath and, and love on the out-breath. Uh, the, uh, you know, what is going on in the world, there's a lot of fear right now because of uh, uh, terrorism, and uh, it's, it's uh, there are some you know realistic concerns, but uh, we also uh, need to have a certain amount of perspective on this. So I would say that we need to find a balance between reason and emotion, and be mindful of um, if we're having an emotional reaction. Uh, sometimes one something that helps is actually to name the emotion by just saying, okay, well, I'm feeling a little bit afraid. There's some evidence that naming the emotion, just being mindful of what that is, can kind of bring you back to a neutral point, which then allows you to look at things more reasonably, perhaps. Mm. And your website is rickheller.com. Uh, you'll be able to find out there uh, where we can buy the book, I guess the usual places, Amazon, bookstores and such. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. yes, thank you. All right, the book is Secular Meditation, 32 Practices for Cultivating Inner Peace, Compassion, and Joy from our guest, Rick Heller. Rick, thanks very much for being with us and giving us an interesting and inclusive approach to an age-old discipline. All the best with the book, and I hope you'll come back and talk with us again sometime. I'd be happy to. Bye-bye. We'll have a link to Rick Heller's website at chiefforyourself.com. And uh, you'll find the show not only on the website, but, uh, of course, in all of the usual places, including Blog Talk Radio. Remember, when you're at chiefforyourself.com, leave your email address in the box provided, and you'll stay informed on who's going to be on the program and when. Visit our Facebook page. Hit the Like button if you would. You can also follow us and find archived shows on the Chief For Yourself YouTube page as well. That's about all for today. I want to thank our guest, Rick Heller, and thank you for spending your time with us. Be well, and I'll talk to you soon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.